In recent years, we have seen a resurgence in the nationwide and worldwide interest in the story of the famous ship, the Titanic. It was the unsinkable ship. In fact, there was so much confidence in the ship being unsinkable that not nearly enough lifeboats were brought along for its maiden voyage. Yet the only thing the Titanic ever did was sink. It serves as a gripping illustration of the extreme danger of overconfidence. More than once in history, overconfidence has been a prelude to catastrophic disaster or defeat. For example, I think of the fall of the Babylonian Empire as recorded in Daniel chapter 5. The Babylonian Empire was the first true world empire. It ruled the known world. The capital city of Babylon was the world's most mightiest fortress. With walls 80 feet thick, 350 feet high, with 100 massive bronze gates in them, the city seemed impregnable, unconquerable. But it came to a shocking downfall in the year 539 B.C. King Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, made a huge feast even though he knew that the Medo-Persian army was right outside the city walls. But he wasn't worried. He was convinced that this city was invincible. Part of his confidence was also due to the self-sufficiency of the city. They had an endless supply of water. The walls of Babylon had been built right over the Euphrates River. The river flowed right through the city, and this provided a constant supply of fresh water. In anticipation of a blockade, the Babylonians had supplied the city with enough food to support itself for 20 years. They could sit inside the city and allow the Medo-Persian army outside to rot. Yet the Medo-Persian army conquered Babylon. But how? It's a fascinating historical incident. The king of Medo-Persia knew that there was no, no way to take the city by normal means of warfare because it was far too strong. There were no instruments of weaponry that could even begin to make a dent in the massive walls and to try to scale the walls was basically committing suicide. Even if you could make it over the first wall, which was highly unlikely, but even if you could, you had a long run to get to the second wall and you would be picked off by the archers before you even got started. So the general of the Medo-Persian army came up with a unique strategy and the Euphrates River was the key. The army diverted the water of the Euphrates by building a dam upstream. Slowly, the water dropped to waist level and the Medo-Persian army marched underneath the massive walls into the city. The city was totally taken by surprise. The first troops went immediately to the royal palace to get Belshazzar, and they killed him on the spot. So Belshazzar was killed, and the great city of Babylon fell October 13, 539 B.C. It was another powerful example of the devastating effects of overconfidence. 
Those are the kinds of stories that get recorded in books or make the front pages of newspapers. But other examples of the devastating effects of overconfidence are no less catastrophic, though they may not be broadcast for everyone to see and to hear. Specifically, what I'm referring to is the crushing defeats experienced by the people of God who suffer those damaging defeats in large measure because of overconfidence, because of trusting in self. Let's look at an example in Joshua chapter 7 by way of introduction to our text in Mark 14. So go back into Hebrew Scripture, past the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, then Joshua chapter 7. We'll pick up the story in verse 2. Where it says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up, and they spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three hundred men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. What happened here? Well, because there was sin in the camp of Israel, as we were told back in verse 1, The people of Israel experienced painful and humiliating defeat. They went into this battle with so much overconfidence that they felt like they didn't even need to take the entire army. But how wrong they were. This is another pointed illustration of what can happen in our lives when we refuse to realize just how vulnerable we are without the Lord's strength. Another example is found in the very next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, chapter 16. So turn over to Judges, chapter 16. This is a familiar story to many people. It's the story of Samson and the mighty strength God had given him. But when he compromised his integrity by allowing Delilah to have his hair shaved off, he forfeited his God-given strength. However, he didn't realize what had happened. He didn't realize that it had happened. So in chapter 16, verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all, that his, all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees, and she called for a man, and he had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder 
in the prison. Another pointed illustration of what can happen in our lives when we refuse to realize just how vulnerable we are without the Lord's strength. When we think we can do it on our own, when we think we can handle it on our own, we are woefully deceived. It's the folly of trusting in self. That kind of overconfidence leads to tragic results. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 11 says, Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. That's a warning about overconfidence. When we think we can do it on our own or handle it on our own, we are woefully deceived. It is the tragedy of trusting in self, the folly of trusting in self, and that kind of overconfidence leads to tragic results. Maybe the most well-known example of this is the Apostle Peter. On the night Jesus celebrated Passover for the last time, he told the disciples that all of them would forsake him during his arrest and trials. But Peter boasted by saying that even though the others might forsake the Lord, he would willingly give his life to stand up for the Lord. But as you know, Peter repeatedly denied his Lord on that very night. We see that interchange in the passage to which we come this morning. So turn with me in your Bible to Mark 14 as we continue our series through Mark's Gospel And please follow along as I read verses 27 through 31. After Jesus had celebrated Passover with his disciples, after he had instituted the Lord's Supper, after they had sung a song and went to the Mount of Olives, in verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. This conversation took place sometime very, very late in the evening. Just prior to this, Jesus had been celebrating his final Passover with his disciples. He knew that it would not be long until he would be nailed to a cross and the one who knew no sin would become sin for us. He also knew that the events of the next several hours were going to be earth-shattering and paralyzing for the disciples. That is why he continually tried to prepare them for these things, and that's what he's doing in this passage here before us. I am certain that Jesus did not tell his men about their upcoming failures to rub their faces in it. He told them what was going to happen so that when it did happen, 
they would know that it did not take Jesus by surprise. They would realize then that he already knew that all this was going to happen and it did not affect the love he had for them. When Jesus told them that they were all going to disown him on this very night, it was out of love that he told them that. It was not out of spite. It was not out of any sense of anger or vindictiveness. It was out of love that he told them. After his death, he did not want them wondering how he felt about them for doing what they did. He wanted them to know that he already knew what they were going to do, and that didn't change the fact that he loved them and he desired to spend this night with them eating Passover. In Luke twenty two fifteen, he said to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus wanted to be with his men on this night, and he eagerly desired to spend his final Passover with them, even though he knew that they were all going to fall away from him in a moment of fleshly fear. He knew they were going to temporarily disown him, but it didn't affect his love for them and his commitment to them. So you could say it this way. Jesus was trying to prepare his men to deal with the shock and devastation of their own upcoming failure. What kind of remarkable love is that? Jesus had so much to deal with in his own heart and in his own mind about what he was going to have to go through physically and spiritually as he was separated from the Father, yet he was still thinking about the spiritual well-being of his men and trying to prepare them to deal with the shock and devastation of their own upcoming failure. You see, he wouldn't be able to be there for them the night after his death and the day after his death, and he wouldn't be able to walk them through how to process what had happened. He would be with his father. But the disciples were going to have to go on. They were going to have to carry on, and that would be extremely difficult for them to do, especially if they were weighed down under the weight of guilt for forsaking their Lord. So there's a sense in which Jesus told them this in advance, as a way to help them deal with it after the fact. Think about it. It had to help them when after the fact, they realized that Jesus already knew they were going to fail in this way, and yet he didn't disown them for doing so. That is one of the reasons, in my opinion, why Jesus gave them this announcement. But I think there was also another reason. I believe Jesus told them this in advance to help them learn about the dangers of self-confidence, the the dangers of overconfidence, the, the dangers of trusting in self. They were going to have to carry on the ministry after Jesus left, after he was gone, and it was so important for them to learn to rely upon him for strength instead of trusting in themselves. If they would learn that lesson through this painful experience, 
that would prove to be invaluable to them in their walk with the Lord in the future and in their ministries for the Lord in the future. So I believe those are the two reasons why Jesus made this announcement to his men in advance. Notice how Mark tells us about it in verse 27. We read in verse 26 that at the end of the Passover, they sang a song or maybe several songs. They left Jerusalem, went across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Most uh, English versions, most of our English translations render this main verb fall away instead of made to stumble as my translation renders it. You will all fall away because of me. The Greek term that is used here has a variety of nuances of meaning. It could be translated, you will all fall into sin this night. Or you will all reject me this night. Or you will all desert me this night. That's what Jesus was communicating to his men. Because of the events that were about to unfold during this evening and in the hours to come, all of his disciples would stumble. They would fall into sin by deserting their Lord. Of course, Jesus isn't implying that they would all end up rejecting him completely and permanently because that didn't happen. All of these men, since Judas had already left, Judas was gone. All of these men were eventually repentant and turned back to the Lord. They were deeply hurt by the fact that they deserted their Lord during the time when he was going through so much mistreatment, so much injustice. They all repented with great sorrow of heart. So Jesus was not implying here in verse 27 that they were going to fall away from him completely and permanently. Only Judas did that because he was never genuine in the first place. He was never real all along. But these men were sincere believers in the Lord Jesus. They were genuine Christians. They were true children of God. They did love the Lord, but in a moment of fleshly fear, they deserted their Lord. Beloved, I hope we are all well aware of the fact that we do the same kind of thing at times. Have you ever, as a Christian, have you ever been afraid to stand up for the Lord? Have you ever been afraid to stand up for your faith? Sure you have, and so have I. So we have no room to look down upon the disciples. All of us are capable of this kind of weakness All of us are capable of this kind of fall in a moment of fear or peer pressure or embarrassment, especially if our focus is horizontal and not vertical. The disciples fled because they were afraid for their lives as a result of what was happening to their master. They saw his arrest. They began to see some of what was going on, they realized there's no no justice in this, so they, in fear, fled. 
So Jesus here in verse 27 mentioned a quote from Zechariah 13 verse 7 which is a passage predicting the death of the good shepherd and the scattering of his sheep, the scattering of the disciples which is exactly what happened. In verse 28 Jesus continuing his announcement said, but, but after I have been raised I will go before you to Galilee. You can't help but wonder if the disciples had any clue about what Jesus was referring to when he said this. Even though Jesus had tried several times, especially in the last about six months of his ministry, he tried many times to tell them what what was going to happen and that he was going to die. It seems like they never really got the message. That may have been why they were so unprepared for all the events that took place in the following hours, his arrest, his trials, the crucifixion, all of that, they just did not see it coming. Nevertheless, here in verse 28, Jesus told them that after it was all said and done, he would meet them in Galilee. Who knows if they could make any sense out of that statement. But one thing they did get was the fact that Jesus said they were all going to fall away Or desert him on this night. At least Peter got that. He heard it. Because in verse 29, Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, even if all fall away, yet I will not. There's a sense in which you have to admire Peter's bold assertion here because it was uttered with good intentions. Peter did love the Lord. And he was genuinely committed to the Lord. So he just couldn't see how he would end up deserting the Lord. He could not fathom any circumstances in his mind that could come together that would result in him doing what Jesus was saying would would happen. But his major mistake was overconfidence or self-confidence. There was no humility in this statement here. In verse 29, he didn't say this, which he could have said. He didn't say, Lord, I would never want to forsake you. By God's grace, I hope and pray that I would never do that. Oh, Lord, may that not be what you're saying. That would have been really commendable had that been Peter's response. But his statement here reveals a self-confidence A trust in self instead of a reliance upon his heavenly Father. That was the lesson he needed to learn, just as we all need to learn it. And this is why you will remember that when Jesus took Peter, James, and John a little further and began to pray, he left them and said, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Temptation is coming. You're going to need strength. And if you think you have enough strength on your own, you are woefully deceived. And it's obvious that Peter was woefully deceived. Not only by his statement here, but later, rather than praying, you know, he slept. And then what did he do? He fell miserably. If we think we are good enough, or strong enough, or wise enough, or sharp enough on our own, we are headed for some major falls. If we think we are sufficient without consciously depending on the Lord, without relying on Him in prayer, we will fail. 
And Peter is front and center. Verse 30, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Not just once, Peter. You're so confident that you're not going to forsake me. But listen, Peter, it's going to happen three times that you'll deny me. You know there is arrogance and self-sufficiency involved in when a direct statement like this from our Lord doesn't get through. And it didn't get through. Not only is this a direct statement, it has specific details in it. Jesus said that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That's not a mere generality. It's a direct statement with specifics. Still, still, Peter and the others were self-confident. Oh, the folly of trusting in self. Verse 31 But he, that is Peter, spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. This verse is really, really strong in the original. Peter went on and on and on, vehemently stating in the strongest way possible that he would never deny the Lord. You know, a lot of people, even a lot of non-Christians know that Peter made this bold and audacious claim. But very few people know that all the disciples made this same claim. Yet the end of the verse says, they all said likewise. All of them. Peter was, was more verbal. Peter was more outspoken about it. But all of them were confident that they would die for the Lord if necessary. They were all overconfident. They were all trusting self. And that is the warning, beloved, that screams at us and to us from this passage. So what I want to do to close this message is I want to apply to our own lives what we have seen in Peter's life and the lives of the disciples. It's not enough to look back at what happened with the disciples or what Jesus said to them. We have to learn from their experiences. We have to let it be a mirror in our own lives. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where we will spend the rest of our time this morning building an application on this story. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here in this 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of some of the events in the history of the people of Israel to serve as a warning to the Corinthians and to us. Let me show you what I mean. Follow along as I read the first dozen verses of 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But 
You've noticed the emphasis on all. All, 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 but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ or test Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. As you can see from reading through this passage, the people of Israel experienced devastating consequences for their failure to deal with their sinful tendencies. And Paul in this passage warns that the same kind of thing can happen to any one of God's people. If it happened to God's people in the Old Testament, it can happen to God's people in the New Testament. That's Paul's point. That's basically what he's saying. Listen, if it happened with the people of God in Israel, it can happen with the people of God today in the church. Now, it doesn't mean that such a person ceases to belong to God, but the consequences of such choices, the consequences of these kinds of actions are very, very significant. So to prove and illustrate this point, Paul brings up this example of the children of Israel who were redeemed out of Egypt, but who experienced the serious consequences of sin. Their example says Paul, serves as a warning about the dangerous consequences of not disciplining your body and bringing it into subjection, as Paul said in the last verse of the previous chapter. You see, we have a little chapter break here between chapters 9 and 10, but as I often uh, remind you, these chapter divisions are not in, were not in the original, they're not inspired, they're generally helpful, but here's maybe an unfortunate one because in verse 27, Paul says of chapter 9, I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, and then as he moves into chapter 10, he gives a list or examples of people who didn't discipline their bodies and bring them into subjection. They didn't do what Paul says he did. So their example serves as a warning about being disqualified from receiving rewards and disqualified from the opportunity to experience all that God has for us. It serves as a warning about the dangers of walking too close to the line lest you step over into sin and experience its devastating consequences. So their example, Paul says, serves as a warning about being overconfident, about trusting in yourself so that you don't realize how easy it is to fall. So here in verses 1 through 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians of all the privileges and all the blessings the people of Israel experienced. They had been been redeemed by God out of Egypt. They had been delivered by Him. They had been blessed by Him. They had spiritual privileges 
but their refusal to exercise self-control in relation to sin put them in the position of being disqualified from the opportunity to experience all that God had for them, and that's why the vast majority never got to experience the land God promised them. Out of all the people who were redeemed from Egypt and out of all the people who experienced these rare and miraculous privileges, only two entered the promised land. Two. Those two were Joshua and Caleb. Think about this. Even Moses and Aaron were disqualified from entering the land. They didn't get in. Which, by the way, illustrates the absurdity of trying to take this passage and make it talk about losing salvation or, you know, being just... If that's the case, then you're going to have to say Moses didn't go to heaven. Aaron didn't go to heaven. Then you've got a real problem with the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah come back from heaven. You've got a, you know, you've opened up Pandora's box. This passage is not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about being disqualified from experiencing all that God wants you to experience and being disqualified from rewards and experiencing the devastating consequences of sin. All of those people, Paul says, All of those people had the rare privilege of God's miraculous blessing, but they allowed sin to rob them of the opportunity to experience all that God had for them. So that is the point Paul is trying to make with these illustrations in the early verses of the chapter. Coming off those illustrations, Paul gives this application in verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, Coming off these stories that the Corinthians would have known. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, having reminded the Corinthians of these events in Israel's history, Paul draws the application in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 is the negative side. Verse 13 is the positive side. Verse 12 says, you are also susceptible. Be careful. And verse 13 says, you are not defenseless. Verse 12 says, if you're not careful, you can also fall. And verse 13 says, if you will draw from the Lord's strength, you don't have to fall. Verse 12 says, don't be arrogant and believe that you are invulnerable. And verse 13 says, don't be worried that you are helpless. Verse 12 says, you can fail. And verse 13 says, you don't have to fail because God is faithful. So this is such a complete and balanced application from the examples that Paul has just been giving in the early verses of the chapter. You see, some Christians who read these examples in verses 1 through 11 might have the tendency to say, huh, I would never do anything like that. I would never do that. To address that kind of improper perspective, Paul writes verse 12 and says, don't kid yourself. You can fall into sin too. Don't think you're, you know, that you are invulnerable. On the other hand, some Christians who read verses 1 through 11 might have the tendency to say, well, 
I mean, listen, if the, if the people of Israel who experienced such blessings and privileges fell into all these different kinds of sins, I don't have a chance to stand strong. If they did it, I don't have a chance. To address that kind of improper perspective, Paul writes verse 13 and says, you do have the ability to stand strong because God has made sure to provide that opportunity for all his people. He is faithful. So that is why I say that these two brief verses, verses 12 and 13, are such a complete and balanced application from the examples Paul has just been giving. The Holy Spirit guided him to give an application to people on both sides of the fence, those who are overconfident and those who feel helpless. Because of our text in Mark about Peter and the other disciples, we're just going to focus on the application to those who are overconfident or those who are self-confident, and that's verse 12 where Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. The word therefore at the beginning of this verse connects it with what Paul has just been saying about the people of Israel and their sinful lapses. It's as if Paul is saying here in verse 12, we we could paraphrase it this way. Listen, listen. If a group of people who were redeemed out of Egypt by the powerful hand of God and who experienced such great miracles and great privileges could fall into sin, so can you. Don't overestimate your strength. Don't assume that because you have been redeemed by God, you can't fall into heinous sin. Don't you dare think that because God has blessed you in so many ways, you could never step into his great displeasure. It could happen to you. That's what verse 12 is saying. It could happen to you. It could happen to me if we are overconfident, if we are trusting self, if we don't continually renew our love for the Lord, if we don't continually renew our devotion to him, it can wane. If we don't continually say no to our body, then it will lead us down the wrong path. Paul is saying here, listen, you can't just do what comes naturally. And again, connect what he's saying here with what he just was saying at the end of chapter 9 about disciplining your body. You can't just do what comes naturally. You can't let self lead you because self wants to be lazy, self wants to be selfish, undisciplined, indulged, and self most often works through the vehicle of our bodies. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There are times when we want to do the right thing, such as praying, but the weakness of our flesh pulls us down as it did when the disciples fell asleep. So Paul's point here at the end of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10 is we have to learn to discipline our bodies and we have to learn to say no to our bodies at times and we have to learn to make our bodies do what we ought to do even when we don't feel like it. If not, then our bodily desires, our bodily tendencies can drive us into sin as happened with the people of Israel. Sadly, this is a foreign concept for some Christians. It is. It's a foreign concept 
for some Christians because they have never, ever really come to grips with what it means to make yourself do what is right even when you don't feel like it. Far too many live by their wants and by what comes natural. If they feel like going to church, they come. If they don't feel like it, they don't come. If they feel like being nice to people, they are nice. But if they're in a bad mood, they just take it out on people around them. They just do what comes naturally. If it's convenient to be involved in the Lord's work, they will serve. But if something else is more fun or more desirable, they'll do that instead. They live their lives by their feelings, by the dictates of their bodies, just by whatever they want to do instead of making their bodies do what is right, good, and best. And the worst instance of this kind of thing is when they follow the desires of their body into sin instead of saying no. So Paul issues this strong warning here in verse 12. Therefore, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. When he uses the word fall, again I want to emphasize, he's not referring to falling from salvation. As some people read into this verse, that is totally foreign to this context. Unless you want to try to say Moses fell and lost his salvation and ended up in hell, which is absurd. No, Paul is talking about falling into sin and experiencing God's displeasure. He is saying we should never get to the point where we think we have arrived spiritually and we are untouchable. In Philippians 3.12, Paul penned these words, Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul said that after 30 years of pursuing righteousness and 30 years of pursuing Christ's likeness. So we should never assume we've arrived. We should never assume that we've gotten to the point where we we don't even need to be concerned about falling because, hey, we've got this down. We've got it mastered. We should never let down our guard when it comes to sin and self. It will always be a battle until we are with the Lord. So until that day, we need to take heed lest we fall. There is no room for overconfidence. That is the folly, the sheer folly of trusting in self. Let's bow together as we close. And maybe this would be a good time for us as the people of God, those who know and love Christ, to do what Peter, James, and John should have done on that night when Jesus told them to pray lest they enter into temptation. This would be a good time for us to affirm to the Lord, Lord, apart from you, without you, I can do nothing. I need your strength. God, grant me the strength to stand for Christ, to live for Christ, to say no to self, no to sin, no to my body when it wants me to go the wrong direction. God, I acknowledge that I need your strength. I cannot win on my own. That's a good good kind of prayer to pray. And if you're here today without a relationship with Christ, you don't even have access to that strength. You need to humble yourself as a little child and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Then begin to draw on his strength.
to live the way He wants us to live. So, Father, this is our prayer as we close this morning. We are all familiar with the story of Peter and the other disciples, the utter failure on that night. And we don't look down at them because we all have done the same kind of thing, if not the exact specifics. And it's a good reminder to us to now call on you for the strength, the enablement, the grace to live the kinds of lives that you have called us to live. We do affirm what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we call upon him to enable us to live the way he's called us to live. For his glory, we pray these things in his name. Amen.